Well, if Emmanuel Anglican is anything like Church of the Resurrection, where I hail from, you have a good number of folks who, like myself, didn't grow up in a liturgical tradition. So it's time for our annual reminder that, yes, folks, it is still Christmas. The 12 Days of Christmas is not just a song that won't end. It is actually a liturgical practice. We celebrate it from December 25th through January 5th. We think the incarnation is a big deal, and so we want to give it a full amount of celebration. Some of you, especially perhaps the kids in the room, when I said that it's still Christmas, may have had this instinct that was like, yes, more Christmas, presents and cocoa, let's keep doing it. Others of us uh, maybe didn't feel that way, uh, especially if you're the one who has to make Christmas happen in your home. Uh, you may have a, a love-hate relationship with Christmas. And if that's you, you're actually in pretty good company with beloved Anglican author C.S. Lewis, who valued the incarnation. And in his own words, he even said he approved of merrymaking. But he had some struggles with, uh, with this Christmas as it was celebrated. He, he wrote in 1957 an essay entitled, What Christmas Means to Me, which sounds like one of those grade school essays that you write. I think I wrote one about freedom. And, uh, and it sounds nice until you read what he says. I'm going to read a little excerpt for us. It gives, on the whole, much more pain than pleasure. You have only to stay over Christmas with a family who seriously try to keep it, in its commercial aspect, in order to see that the thing is a nightmare. Long before December 25th, everyone is worn out, <laughs> physically worn out by weeks of daily struggle in overcrowded shops, mentally worn out by the effort to remember all the right recipients and to think out suitable gifts for them. They are no trim for merrymaking, much less if they should want to, to take part in a religious act. They look far more as if there had been a long illness in the house. <laughs> he goes on to make three other points about why Christmas is a drag. And <laughs> you can't make this stuff up. I share it, though, and not because I want to be down on Christmas, but I think that many of us, I want to acknowledge that many of us don't feel the way we're supposed to feel on Christmas or that we think we're supposed to feel, and we carry it around as like this shameful secret because nobody wants to be a downer on Christmas. As a society, we've romanticized Christmas a great deal. We expect it to be merry and bright, to be holly and jolly. For some of us, though, the sleigh bells and cheerful greetings are masking a lot of pain. Perhaps memories of loved ones that can't be with us to celebrate anymore. Or for others, it might be loved ones who are able to celebrate with us and that conflict that bubbles up when everybody gets together. Or maybe some of us wish we could have that conflict because our family is on the other side of the country, on the other side of the world, and we can't be with them. And there's some loneliness there. Or maybe you've had the experience of being pulled out of your regular routines and then suddenly the week of a holiday like Christmas, you find yourself faced with temptations that you thought you'd left behind you years ago. Maybe you followed the news and you saw that there were Nigerian brothers and sisters on the other side of the world who lost their lives while we were celebrating here. And there's this, this dissonance between the joy of the holiday, the joy of celebrating the birth of Jesus, that, that, that's supposed to be this good news and the actual reality that we're facing, the struggles or suffering that might be in our lives. I, I want you to know that Christmas, if it's good news for anyone, is not just good news for the happy people. 
It's not just good news for the optimistic people or the well-adjusted people. If it's good news at all, it's good news for all people, including people who have experienced or who are experiencing a good deal of suffering. It's important that we acknowledge this because if we don't, we're liable to be scandalized when suffering comes. We may say, I thought Jesus was supposed to make my life better. Why is the Christian life so hard? Where is God in my suffering? Where is God for our brothers and sisters who are facing death in Nigeria? Where is God in my temptation? Where is God? As so many of my friends who have walked away from Jesus and the faith, that's actually been near the heart of what they're wrestling with. Where is God? And I want to say this is not an inappropriate question to ask at Christmas. In fact, that's exactly the question that we want to be asking because it's the question that Christmas answers. This church is called Emmanuel Anglican Church. It's a beautiful name. Emmanuel is one of Jesus's names. First prophesied in the book of Isaiah, later fulfilled in the first chapter of Matthew where the angel announces Jesus's birth and says that Jesus was to be called Emmanuel, God with us. That's what it means, God with us. Which brings us back to our question. Where is God in our suffering? He's with us. That's where he is. That's the mysterious, beautiful, mind-shattering truth of Christmas. That the ruler over all things in heaven and on earth became a human being with all of the joys and heartaches thereof in a world-changing event that we call the Incarnation. Jesus, God the Son, through whom all things were made and apart from whom nothing was made, became a human being. And he didn't just take on an easy-peasy, sanitized version of our humanity. He dove into human life with all of its grit and suffering. He didn't come to a palace, right? He came to a feeding trough. He didn't come as an aristocrat. He came as a commoner. The passage that we read in the Matthew account in your bulletins of, of Jesus' family picking up in the middle of the night to, to, to flee to Egypt, to escape the, the persecution. You, you had this insecure king who was going to slaughter all the babies in the village because he perceived a threat. Jesus entered our world as a refugee. He experienced extreme hunger in the wilderness, bereavement, fear of impending death. He experienced betrayal at the hands of a friend. He lived through the challenges of celibacy, the shame of rejection. Ultimately, he was beaten, whipped, and killed in a torturous manner. And for what? Why should Jesus have suffered all these things? Sometimes we talk about Jesus' sufferings as if it's mostly for like empathy, so that Jesus could be the friend who sits next to us and says, I know what you're going through. And that's certainly true in part. Hebrews talks about Jesus, the book of Hebrews. It talks about Jesus being able to sympathize with us since he was tempted in every way. But that isn't the whole story. If all we needed was a sympathetic ear, we wouldn't need the incarnation. We have group therapy, right? We can find people who can sit with us and who have gone through what we've gone through, who can weep with us. The passage that we read in Hebrews chapter 2, and that's where we're going to spend most of our time today, 
Hebrews 10, or 2, 10 through 18, tells us that Jesus' suffering was fitting. It was actually important. The passage actually says that Jesus was made perfect through suffering. Now, wait a minute. I thought Jesus was God. How can God be made more perfect? I'm glad you asked. That word perfect, in English, we think of it as being as good as you can be, right? Perfect means something is as good as it can possibly be. In the language the Bible was written in, often it carries more of a sense of completion, a sense of of, of achieving one's intended purpose or completing the purpose for which one is made or for which one comes. And suffering was an important, integral part of the purpose for which Jesus came. It was critical to his mission. So what was his mission? Well, he came, as the passage tells us, to bring many sons to glory. I don't want you to stress too much at this point about the fact that it it uses masculine sons. We're actually going to get into that. That word is is important. We'll come back to that. It's, It's not just for men. It's also women, sons and daughters. But he didn't just come to commiserate with us. He came to rescue us. He came to adopt us, to bring us to the Father. He didn't break into our burning house to sit with us and say, wow, yeah, it's really hot in here. It actually is really hot in here. (laughs) It's really hot in here. I'm glad we can experience this suffering together. No, he's a firefighter busting in to save us. The passage we read from Hebrews calls Jesus the founder of our salvation, or some translations prefer the pioneer of our salvation. That word founder or pioneer has the sense of somebody who leads the way, who is first, who goes before. As God was with his people going before them, leading them out of slavery in Egypt, God goes before us. Jesus goes before us, leading us out of sin and death. Did that passage that we read in Matthew remind you of anything? That story? You've got a king who's insecure, who orders that all the babies in an area be slaughtered. That's the story of Moses, right? Matthew is drawing this deliberate comparison. He even has Egypt in there. He mentions that detail. This deliberate comparison between Jesus and Moses because Jesus is our new and better Moses who is going to lead us out of our own brand of slavery. He's the pioneer of our salvation. Now, for this rescue mission to be successful, it was necessary that Jesus should suffer with us. Not just because of us, although that's true, Not just instead of us, although that's true, but with us. Our rescue, our salvation was achieved by Jesus suffering with us. See, humanity had some problems that couldn't be addressed from a distance. They required someone to charge into the flame. And we're going to talk about some of these problems that humanity has. We have an identity problem. We have a mortality problem. And we have a sin problem. Let's talk about our identity problem for a moment. The Bible tells us that when God created humans, he made us in his image. We were designed to be like him, at least in certain ways. When the gospel writer Luke narrates Jesus' genealogy, he calls Adam the son of God. And there's that word son again. In the ancient world, a son was not just a person's biological offspring, right? It's not just a statement of where you come from it also carries with it the idea of an heir, someone who shares in the life of a family, who carries the family's identity with them. That's why it's so significant that the Bible calls us sons 
because it means that all of us, men and women, are heirs of God. We carry, those of us who have been brought into the life of Christ, we carry God's identity with us. That's how we were designed to be. But something happened. Our ancestors rejected that birthright. They decided that they didn't want God to tell them who they were or how they were to live. They wanted to be the masters of their own destiny, the founders of their own family. And in doing so, we divorced ourselves from God. We created this rift rift between ourselves and the author of our identity that we have perpetuated ever since that first fall of our ancestors, Adam and Eve. And even if we wanted to close that rift, we can't. A rebellion has isolated us to the point that we cannot approach God to reclaim our place in his family. I've got a a not yet two-year-old who, uh, when she was just old enough to toddle around, thought it was really fun to close doors. So she would would close, close herself into a room and then realize that she wasn't tall enough to open the door again. And so she just kind of had to call there yelling, mama, daddy, until we finally found her in the bathroom or the bedroom or wherever it was. We're like that, that child that has closed ourselves off from the family, but can't get back in. And God has to come to us. We cannot penetrate God's divinity, but he desired a relationship with us. So he took on our humanity. God, in his perfect foreknowledge, this is amazing to me, made us the kind of creature that he could become. When he designed us at the foundation of the world, he made us the kind of creature that was in his image, the kind of creature that he could become, because he knew that one day, when we can no longer enter the presence of a holy God, that the Son of God would become a mortal man so that he could identify with us and call us brothers and sisters. He claimed us as brothers and sisters, so that his father might become our father. Our Christmas-hating friend, C.S. Lewis, who actually really did love the incarnation, Father Christmas was a character in one of his stories. He paraphrased Irenaeus, saying this, the son of God became a man to enable men to become sons of God. Jesus, by taking on our humanity, redeems the human condition and restores our place as heirs of God. That's how he addresses our identity problem. But the problem is not just about our identity, right? And our impaired relationship with God. Sin had some very concrete consequences. When we divorced our identity from God, we became subject to the curse of suffering and ultimately death. We not only had an identity problem, but we had a mortality problem as well. If Jesus was going to take on our humanity, He needed to subject himself to the human condition with all its implications. You can't say that Jesus identified with us if he didn't take on our curse. A little further down in verse 17, it explains that Jesus had to be made like his brothers in every respect. He had to suffer if he was going to be human. And ultimately, he would have to die. By analogy, it's a bit like marrying someone who's deeply in debt, right? Before I get married, my student loans are my debt. After I get married, my student loans are our debt. (laughs) By identifying with the human family, Jesus made our curse his curse. Our suffering became his suffering. Our death became his death. But when you read the gospel accounts of Jesus, you'll notice that when Jesus touches something, he redeems it. When Jesus touches the leper, he doesn't get contaminated. The leper gets healed. 
In the same way, Jesus, by entering into our suffering, actually redeems it for our benefit. Verse 18 says that since he himself suffered when he was tempted, he can help us when we are tempted. When we're tempted to throw in the towel on God because our loneliness is too great. When we're tempted to act selfishly because the cost of sacrifice is too high. I think of our brothers and sisters in Nigeria who surely are tempted to to give up the faith for the sake of their lives. And yet, Jesus can help us. We can look to the sufferings of Jesus and we realize that he has not called us to anything that he was not willing to take on. And suddenly the suffering that we go through, whatever that might be, is given dignity. It's given purpose. It becomes redemptive suffering. It's like the suffering of a woman who's bringing a child into the world. It doesn't make the pain any less, so I'm told. But there's a reason for it. There's something to be gained from it. It's making us more like Jesus. It's teaching us how to carry our cross. Jesus' sufferings give new meaning for our sufferings. But Jesus didn't just change our relationship with suffering. He changed our relationship with death itself. Take a look at verse 14. Since, therefore, the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. On the cross, Jesus turned death against itself. Now, wait a minute, Kevin. This is starting to sound like a Good Friday message. Still Christmas. What does this have to do with Christmas? Well, before we can get to the cross, We have to start at the manger, or if you like mnemonic devices, before we get to the tomb, we have to start at the womb. Early Christians had a hard time explaining why God should have chosen to become a flesh and blood human being, because they lived in a culture where physical matter was perceived as being at best crass and at worst evil. During their time, folks had a hard time understanding why the God of the universe would possibly willingly take on flesh and blood. It would be worse than suggesting that, I don't know, I take on the nature of a cockroach. It was disgusting. It was evil. It was was a terrible thought. But these early Christians knew that they had to hang on to the incarnation because the very logic of the gospel was at stake. Can you think of anything that God can't do? He's all-powerful, right? He can do anything. Well, but the Bible also tells us, in Romans, for instance, that God is immortal which by definition means God can't die. But death was part of his rescue plan. That was part of the rescue plan for humanity. And so God, the son, became a human being so that he could take that curse of death upon himself. He didn't need to become a human to teach us things, to tell us truth, right? He could have spoken to a prophet. He could have appeared as a human being to tell us, good news of of how to be reconciled or something like that. If he just needed to give us information, he could have done that without the incarnation, but he had to become the kind of creature who could die. So God the Son took on our humanity. He died, but then something incredible happened. He didn't just satisfy the terms of Adam's curse. He went on the offensive. Hebrews tells us that by dying, he actually destroyed the power of the devil. Christian writers throughout history have used all kinds of fun metaphors to describe what that was like. One popular image was by a man named Gregory of Nyssa, who compares Satan to a big fish, who Jesus tempts with the worm of his humanity, and the fish latches onto that worm and gets caught by the hook of his divinity. 
now I don't want to get caught up in models of the atonement and all that for those of you who are you know, theological students or something. Whether or not that's an apt metaphor, the point is this. When Jesus died, he didn't stay dead. Because though he was fully human and humans can die, he was also fully God and it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. And so he rose again. And because he is the pioneer of our salvation, because he's our new Moses leading us out of slavery to death, we have the promise that if God's life is enough, if we're united with him, made possible by the incarnation, if we're united with him, if we've identified with him through faith, which is what we act out in our baptism, we won't stay dead either. Because we're united with Jesus, the making, the, by making our identification with Christ possible, the incarnation carries with it the seeds of our hope of resurrection. Now, the resurrection may seem like pie in the sky by and by, something that we talk about as a future reality that, yeah, I believe in the resurrection, but it actually has huge implications for us today. The passage says we were subjected to slavery by the fear of death. Death has a way of casting a shadow over our lives. Folks do things to avoid death that they wouldn't do otherwise. We might be tempted to take on as much as we can, to gather as much as we can, to make our 80 years of life as comfortable as possible before we die. The fear of death leads us to make selfish decisions. But because of the empty tomb, Christians are free to live sacrificial lives. As Christians, we don't have to be afraid to die because Jesus has already demonstrated that death's power is temporary. Death is that stern substitute teacher that won't be here tomorrow. It's that prison guard the day before our release. It has power, but it's temporary. The Christian church boasts thousands of martyrs who have followed Jesus in the face of gallows, lions, bonfires, beheadings, because they know that they will awaken in the presence of the founder of their salvation. St. Stephen as he was being stoned, looked up to heaven and saw the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God, welcoming him home. Because of the incarnation and the, and the subsequent resurrection, we can face our mortality with a quiet confidence in God because death has lost its sting. So Jesus dealt with our identity problem through his suffering. He dealt with our mortality problem. But we still have one more problem. When I was originally writing this sermon, I called it our morality problem because it worked nicely with mortality. But I felt like that didn't actually capture the depth of it. When I think of morality, I think of the, sort of the actions that we do. But our problem is so much deeper than that. Every aspect of us is tainted by this thing called sin, this rebellion against God, the desires of our hearts, the thoughts of our minds. There are things that we do that we're not supposed to do and things that we don't do that we are supposed to do. We're hopeless. The fact is that curse of death, we deserve it. We deserve suffering. We deserve death. And God is just. He, he can't just wink at sin and say, ah, well, you know, I'll send Jesus to take care of it. It's fine. Right? That's not how that worked. It, it wasn't like, a, like Jesus was a pass on, on, on sin. Sin was serious. So what is, how is it that Jesus died for our sins? How was how it possible that he could do that? Because I was talking to a Muslim friend of mine once, and she was telling me that this is a part that she doesn't under understand about Christianity. She said, I can't see how one person can die for the sins of another person. I don't see how that works. 
How can you just get yourself off the hook like that? It seems unfair. And that's a really good question. It's an important question to understand why Jesus is actually able to die for our sins because he did. He did take our punishment on the cross, right? We know that. He did do that. Why is he able to do that? Well, I suppose he is God, so he gets to write the rules. But it's significant that Jesus didn't become just any kind of being. He didn't become an angel or a llama or an alien, right? There are probably other good reasons for that. He became a human being, a descendant of Abraham, because as verse 16 tells us, he was helping the children of Abraham. He became a descendant of Adam because he needed to represent us. In our individualistic culture, we don't tend to think about collective responsibility, but we do understand collective representation. Take a look at our government, right? We let all kinds of people run for political office, but if you want to be president, you have to be born in the United States. If you want to represent Illinois in Washington, DC, you don't have to be born in Illinois, but you have to live in Illinois. For someone to represent someone else, there needs to be some kind of identification between them, between the representative and those they represent, for it to be true representation. In the Old Testament, we see collective responsibility and representation at work. God introduces the idea of priests, right, who are members of the community, who represent the people by offering sacrifices to God. The guilt of the people was placed on these animals, these animal sacrifices. But although these sacrifices pointed ahead to Jesus, the book of Hebrews tells us that the blood of bulls and goats can't actually atone for sin. They're not qualified to represent us because they're not human. They didn't owe the debt, so they couldn't pay it. And the priests themselves weren't exactly qualified to represent us before a holy God because they themselves were sinful. Remember earlier how I compared Jesus taking on our curse with marrying into debt? Well, imagine if two people in debt got married and one of the debtors tried to pay off the debts of the other one. How's that going to work, right? I take out a loan to pay off your debts. Well, then I'm just deeper in debt. You, you, we cannot pay off one another's debts if we're both in debt. In the same way, no, mere hu no human can pay for the sins of another. Because I, we all have our own sin, our own debt before God. But Jesus was different. Jesus didn't bring his debt into the relationship. He didn't have any debt. He hadn't sinned. Although he was fully human, he was without sin, which means he, out of all of humanity, was uniquely able to pay the penalty for human sin. Every other human being who dies deserves it. Because we've all sinned, and the price of sin is death. But Jesus was the perfect sacrifice for the sins of the world because one, he was truly a human being so he could represent us. And two, he was not himself guilty of sin. This makes him the perfect sacrifice for sin and the perfect high priest. And the Bible tells us that if we confess our sins, putting our trust in Jesus, giving our loyalty to him, uniting with him in his death and resurrection, God promises to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness, he considers that debt paid. And more than that, have you thought about the fact that Jesus didn't stop being a human being? He's still at the right hand of the Father, interceding for us, representing us. We have a human representative at the right hand of the Father, and we still have his help on earth. Jesus didn't just get our sins forgiven. Hebrews tells us that he continues to help us when we are tempted. Sometimes this help may be a simple reminder of his example. 
we re- can read about his victory over the devil's temptation or use scripture to resist the evil one. Perhaps when we see a cross or a crucifix, we're reminded of the suffering that he went through rather than taking that temptation to seize the, cro- the crown without the cross. But it's not just his example. By his Holy Spirit, he actually strengthens our wills and guides our affections so that we can resist temptation. First Corinthians says, when we are tempted, he will provide a way out. He knows exactly what we need when we're tempted because he himself faced temptation. So through the incarnation, Jesus addressed our identity problem. He addressed our mortality problem and he addressed our sin problem. But I want to come back to our initial question. The question was, where is God? Where is God in my suffering? Where is God in the face of death or in the face of temptation? The Bible never promises that the life of a Christian will be without trouble. It never promises that we won't suffer or that we won't be tempted. But what it does promise is Emmanuel. Jesus said that he would be with us always and forever. And I hope as you're you're experiencing whatever you're going through in your life, I, I hope you can see in this passage the deep love of God for you. He was not aloof from your suffering. He could have been, but he wasn't. He chose to charge into the flames. I taught from this, this passage a couple of weeks ago at a retirement community, and, and this elderly woman came up to me afterwards, and usually it's always a good job, pastor. Thanks for coming, pastor. And she said, she was almost in tears. She said, how deep is his love for us? Jesus loves you so much. He's with you. He sees your struggles. He sees your righteous indignation against injustice. He sees all the things that are wrong with the world. He entered into it. He knows it firsthand. But he's redeeming it. He entered into our suffering, into our temptation, into our death, so that he can lead us into glory. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.